it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, we'll be talking to the linguist Erica Okrant about her new book, Highly Irregular, Why Tough, Through, and Doe Don't Rhyme, and Other Oddities of the English Language. And we will also be quizzing one of our listeners with some musical wordplay. So last time we talked a bit about the script's national spelling bee and this year's fabulous winner, Zaila Avant-Garde. We had planned to continue that discussion in this episode, but due to some scheduling conflicts, we're going to hold off on that for now. Yeah, that's right. But our guest for this episode, Erica Okrant, will actually help us understand how English spelling got so weird in the first place, so much so that we need these things we call spelling bees. Uh, She's got some great insights into all the historical happenstance that shaped not just the spelling of English, but also pronunciation and grammar. Yeah, we really need that because even in trying to pronounce the name of her book, I got (laughs) stuck on tough and through. So I'm looking forward to talking to her. But English isn't alone in having peculiar ways of relating speech sounds to the way they're written down. Every language has its own way of doing things. And we got a good example of that recently in the opening ceremony of the Olympics in Tokyo. Right. That opening ceremony may have felt a little odd to viewers for a number of reasons, I guess. I mean, like the fact that there were hardly any spectators in the stands because of pandemic protocols. But as the Olympic athletes marched into that nearly empty stadium, um, they had to follow a particular order uh, based on the language of the host country, Japanese. Right. But first we saw the athletes from Greece because Greece always goes first since they held the first Olympic Games. But then the country we saw after that was Iceland. Now we'll go in alphabetical order according to the Japanese language and Iceland begins that list, Europe's western. Yeah, so the way they explained it in the American broadcast is they were going in alphabetical order according to the Japanese language. But it's a little more complicated than that. So um, Japanese doesn't actually use an alphabetic system. The Japanese writing system, it's a bit of a hybrid. So you've got kanji, which are characters that are adopted from Chinese that can represent a whole word. And then it's got kana, which uh, those are characters that represent a syllable. In English, we're used to putting words in alphabetical order, but there's a special way to order those Japanese syllable characters, the kana. They put the characters in a 5 by 10 grid based on the possible consonants and vowels in each syllable. Yeah, so this grid system is called Gojuan, and it actually it goes all the way back to old Japanese, and it's based on a system for ordering characters that were used to write Sanskrit, believe it or not. 
So it was actually Buddhist monks who came up with this whole thing back in the ninth century, and it's still used today. So if you're looking up words in a Japanese dictionary, it'll use that same system. So the Olympic teams marching in the Olympic ceremony followed the same order. They started with countries that had vowel sounds at the beginning of their Japanese names, like Iceland and Ireland, because the Gojuan system starts with the vowels. Yeah, it's really interesting. The International Olympic Committee actually has very specific rules for all of this, like how athletes are supposed to march in the opening and the closing ceremonies. And the rules specifically say the delegations parade in alphabetical order according to the language of the host country. So back in 2008, for instance, at the Beijing Olympics, they used a system uh, where the countries were ordered by the first Chinese character in each of their names. And then they used the sorting system where um, it involves the number of strokes in the characters and the order of those strokes. Woo! And even when the Olympic Parade of Nations just uses the Latin alphabet, it's alphabetized according to the host country's language. So at Rio in 2016, that meant Brazilian Portuguese, which of course is different from the Portuguese spoken in Portugal. And there are even complications beyond that. For political reasons, a number of countries compete under a name different than their common ones. And this is how you get things like Chinese Taipei. Well, you know, at least it always gives something for the, uh, the anchors to talk about on these Olympic broadcasts. Uh, even if they don't delve too much into the linguistic nitty-gritty. As we go along here, the nations are marching in the order of the Japanese alphabet. And future host countries will go last. So that's USA and France and then the current host. The Japanese get to go last in our parade of nations. And we'll be back with our guest, Erica Okren, after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is Dr. Erica Okrent, a linguist and author who's just published a new book called Highly Irregular, Why Tough, Through, and Doe Don't Rhyme, and Other Oddities of the English Language. Welcome, Erica. Hi, thanks for having me. This is great. So you've been in the language game for quite some time, having gotten a PhD in linguistics and then going on to write about language and linguistics for the public. Uh, lots of listeners may be familiar with your work on constructed languages, but what inspired you to take on the weirdness of English with this new book? Uh, well, it's a little bit connected because the my journey into the land of invented languages um, really showed me that as much as people over history has have wanted to perfect language, make it more orderly, make it more logical, and and having failed at this over and over again, uh, you come to see that well, language doesn't want to be like that. Like language needs to be as sloppy and messy as as it is. Uh, but then I started thinking about that with respect to English. Well, there are some ways in which English is a little sloppier and messier maybe than other languages. And the way that people complain about it is very unique. And, and so I started looking into the messiness of English in particular as one of those unperfectable languages. Yeah, no, I mean, that sloppiness is um, upsetting to people, I guess, who want to think of language as this nice logical system. 
But what's great about your book is that you show how this weirdness permeates every level of the language. So you have examples, great examples about pronunciation and spelling, uh, all the way up to uh, word meaning and sentence structure. Uh, do you have any favorite uh, examples of, you know, the weirdness of English that you sort of go to example just to get across just how weird English can be? Well, I really like the one that I start with is kernel, the word kernel, because that has wrapped up in that one word is a bunch of stories about what happened. So the structure of the book is who's to blame for the mess. So here's the mess. It's at every level. So who can we blame for it? And and Colonel hits, you know, at least three of them. Uh, we can, of who we can blame. We can blame the French. We can blame the printing press. We can blame the snobs. Uh, and it, it kind of, it's all wrapped up in this one word that is spelled nothing like it's pronounced. And, but we just we learn it and we do it and we we accept that despite the craziness of that particular spelling. So you mentioned that there are at least five groups of people to blame for the weirdness of English. Um, can you tell us kind of broadly why why are we blaming these folks and is there someone we can blame the most? <laughs> well, the yeah, so the peop- the ones we blame are blame the barbarians. That's the oldest layer, the Germanic base of English that is still with us in our irregular verbs, still with us in the the GH spelling, the this weird sound that they had and Latin didn't have. How are you going to spell it? This ch becomes a gh, and then we lose the ch, and but it's still there in the spelling, enshrined from that barbarian layer. And then we have the French, which is one that that's um, probably the most talked about of what happened to English. Oh, the Norman invasion. We got this influx of vocabulary, and we also it also had an effect on how we write things, how we say things, how we spell things, uh, and then blame the printing press uh, is very important because when you have a population that's mostly illiterate, which was the case for most of the history, you changes don't um, disturb as much. But once the printing press comes and these things are set in hot type and expanded and expanded around the country in a way that written manuscripts couldn't do, people get the habit of that's how you write it. There was a a writing habit before that, but then now there's a huge widespread writing habit that just gets reinforced and reinforced. We blame blame the printing press. Then we blame the snobs who decided to try to intervene. I know, let's put some Latin and Greek roots in there. Let's do, let's look back to Colonello um, and, and various other uh, you know, rules. This, these are the rules of English, which we didn't really have that before. This, here's what we say that we had rules, but we didn't have. Here's what we say the rules are, and now we do, and then that changes uh, things. And then, but the, I think the most important one is the final one, which is blame ourselves. We do things with language um, that make it not want to be consistent and orderly and logical because that is not that does not help language work well because we need language to be flexible enough to say anything we need to say while at the same time we need it to be conservative enough to pass it along and and so those two that tension between those two things infinitely productive and creative and flexible 
You can talk without knowing what you're going to say. You can talk in order to hear yourself think and then discover what you think as you're talking. It's not like craft the message perfectly and then put it out with language. That's, that's not, you know, the main job. What do you see? I mean, is English particularly different from any other natural language or does, does every natural language share this chaos and messiness or is there something that makes English especially chaotic and messy? Well, I think the main thing that makes English different is, um, is probably most to do with the timing of the printing press because English and, and all, all these other European languages and some non-European languages took the Latin alphabet and nobody took it as badly as, as English did. So you can take, you know, you can look at the rules of Danish spelling and it can fit on a couple pages. You can read it, you can memorize the rules and you can take a piece of text and read it out. Even if you don't understand it, like, I mean, this would be very difficult to do, especially with Danish, but this would be difficult to do, but you'd be able to get all the rules that you need. And, and even French, which has its own spelling weirdness and silent letters and endings you don't pronounce, you can put all the spelling rules on a reasonable number of pages and you can learn them without knowing, without knowing the language. Um, it's not just what sounds map to what spellings, it's also what spellings map to what sounds and they're different. You have to learn both. So it is, a, it's particularly with respect to spelling, English is weird. And I think it's because, especially weird, because of the timing of the printing press. It was at a, you know, middle of the great vowel shift. And also at a time when English was coming back. So English was, English never went away. The French came in, they took over all the official government, landowning, all these the official things were done in French or Latin. And English was, everybody else still spoke English, but it was, you know, the fields and the home and, um, and it, and, but at, after a few hundred years, um, the, the nobles started speaking English again. Um, it wasn't that uh, they came in and forced everyone to speak French. They came in and did their thing in French while everyone went about their business. And then they became English. They lost their contact with the Norman, you know, holdings and the English, the nobles became English. And when they did, they started doing official things in English, but they couldn't, uh, they had to grab for French. Like, how do you say this in English? Like, we don't do this in English. So what do they do? They grab the thing they know from their education and they put that into English, and that also, that put this messy layer of, we're speaking English, we're writing English, we're using language, but as we go, we're grabbing the French that we know to fill in these gaps um, of official language, and and we're spelling it the French way, or not, or maybe, or sometimes we are, sometimes we aren't. So yeah, that's that's a long answer, but I think those two things, the, the way that English came back and the printing press putting these things down at a moment of great fluctuation in English pronunciation uh, made it a, a uniquely uh, a spelling hassle. 
Yeah, one thing I like a lot about this book is it's going to definitely appeal to people who are prescriptively inclined, but it does not make judgments. So we've been very careful not to say like English is better or worse than other languages. They're all got their own quirks, right? Um, but I do think you have some facts in here that are sure to upset the grammar pedants or the snobs, as you call them in the book. In particular, there's a hobby horse that they have, which is literally. <laughs> so I'm kind of interested. Why did you choose to write about how literally came to mean figuratively? And do you get hate ma- mail or <laughs> negative pushback? Well, it's the it's the last one, or it's near the end because I I very you know I really want to be strongly uh, make the point that this book is about standard English. Like when I when I would say to people, I'm ri- I'm writing a book. Um, about the you know the history of English as told through why it's so weird, and they always they would say, oh yeah, I have a question about this. Why do people say uh, you know uh, some some grammatical um, uh, some dialect or uh, non-standard grammatical? Why do they say this? Why do they say um, com- conversating or something like that? Yeah, yeah, is that going to be in there? And it was always like no. That's not what we're talking about. English, standard English is weird. Like the English of the highest level, you know, British judge is, this is the, the, this is the things they use and this is the things we're talking about. So, but at the end, literally got in there because um, that is a question that people have. Like, why does, why do people use literally like this? And the answer is part of a blame ourselves which is something we're going to do and we've been doing. We say literally for, um, for exaggeration, for emphasis, in the exact same way we say really. When I say, oh, it's, it's, uh, I was really tearing my hair out. Oh, no one says, oh, were you doing it in reality? Because you just said you were really tearing your hair out. We don't notice it because it happened already a long time ago and, liter- and we're, gonna keep doing it words get stale we need to we need to make it more exaggerated fresh again like say i really tore my hair out just doesn't have the same impact as i literally tore my hair out and so yeah i sort of want to end on that one because it's like this thing that that the blame ourselves thing we do that makes all these other things weird makes this weird and you might object to it now but in in a hundred years you won't and and, but it'll be something else. <laughs> Erica, thank you so much for talking to us. And once again, um, your book is highly irregular, Why Tough Through and Doe Don't Rhyme, and other oddities of the English language published by Oxford University Press with amazing illustrations by Sean O'Neill. And after the break, it's time for some wordplay. asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back. In our final segment, we're going to be playing with language. Yeah, and this time we have a listener who's going to be joining in the fun. We are very pleased to be joined by Naomi Schaefer. Naomi, welcome. And uh, tell us a little about yourself. Hi, Ben. Hi, Nicole. So happy to be here. Uh, I work in higher ed uh, in the Boston area. And I love words, love crossword puzzles in particular, and excited to uh, get into some puzzles. Excellent. Okay, Naomi, we've got a, a challenge for you that's called musical arrangements. If you like music and you like anagrams, then you're in luck. I hope both of those things are true. <laughs> they are. You're in luck. Excellent. <laughs> Here's how it's going to work. Um, you're going to hear a clip from a song, and you will need to identify the artist. But you will also need to figure out an anagram of the artist's name based on a clue that we are going to give you. Okay? So here's an easy example for you. Uh, the name of this band is an anagram of a four-letter word for bird of peace. I think I know what it is. Yeah, we're starting it starting off easy here, just so you get a sense of how this works. So, I appreciate um, that. Sure, no problem. So yeah, pretty recognizable song, and uh, pretty pretty straightforward anagram as well. So what do you have? Pretty sure the band is Devo and the bird is Dove. Exactly, you got it. Great. All right. I feel like Naomi's going to be a pro at this. Uh, so let's give you something a little bit more challenging. This artist's name anagrams to a seven-letter word for a top dog in the army. I'm so in love with you. Is it just the first name? It's the full name of the artist, first and last name, as he's commonly known. Oh, okay. You think it just you have came it? to me. Yeah. Excellent. I think you he's have... also a reverend. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, go okay. Ahead. So I'm pretty sure that the artist is Al Green and yeah. the anagram is general. Yes, that's yes. it. Wonderful. Well done, well done. Okay, are you ready for a, a slightly harder one? Let's hear it. Okay, here we go. This artist's name, again, first and last name, anagrams to a nine-letter word for celebratory beverages. You, I see you smiling. It looks like you, you figured it out. It all the came together for you. The light bulb just turned on. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Ooh, okay, so harder. what do you have for this one? Yeah, definitely okay. harder. 
So at first I was like, I know her name is Tony, but then, uh-huh. and then I thought of, okay, what could the celebratory drink be? And then I thought of libations, and then wow. I backtrack and I thought Tony Basil. There you go. Oh, well solved. I like how you 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 know you figured out the pieces and figured out how they all came together. Excellent job. That's what crosswords gets you. Yeah, ex- sometimes exactly. you gotta come back around. <laughs> Well, and your music knowledge is really impressive too, not just the crossword stuff. So um, I think we can take it up a notch. We've got a really tough one for you. Okay. This artist's name anagrams to a 13-letter word for certain Protestant church members. Ooh. I'm Jewish, so I feel like I'm at a disadvantage here, but <laughs> let's see. Yeah, maybe you need pencil and paper for this to uh, work out the anagram. I definitely know the artist. Okay, I think I got it. So the artist is Britney Spears, and I think that would mean that the, is the answer Presbyterians? Presbyterians oh is God. right. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. wow. Wow, you got them all. That was an amazing <laughs> job, especially that last one, figuring out the uh, Britney Spears anagram in your head. Well done. Well done. Whew. Good job. Okay, now I mean, you can relax now, but we, we have a special challenge for all the listeners out there. We want you all to try to figure one out. Okay, so it works the same as before. This time, the artist's name first and last, anagrams to the title of a popular song from the 90s by the group TLC. No one to talk with all by myself No one to walk with But I'm happy on the shelf They misbehaving Saving my love for you For you, for you, for you I know for certain the one I love I'm through with flirting it's you that I'm thinking of a misbehaving saving my love for you So once again, we're looking for the name of the artist and an anagram of the name that's the title of a song from the 90s by TLC Think you got it? If you know it, send in your answer to us at spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. Please include both the artist's name and the anagram. From the correct entries, we will randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Uh, Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, we'll give you a one-year extension on your subscription. And we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. So once again, that's spectacular at Slate.com with quiz in the subject line. Thank you for joining us, Naomi. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery, it's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash spectacular plus. And thank you to Erica Okrent for being our guest this week. 
Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis and Shana Roth. June Thomas is Slate Podcast's senior managing producer. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening.